Welcome you to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, is this the last year that we will ever be able to have open forums to share our freedom of speech? Is this true not just in the United States, but around the world as well? And if so, how do we get here? How do we get to a place where virtually everything that is being said on important domestic, medical, scientific issues is biased, but not on behalf of the average citizen, but by special interest groups. How did this happen? How how do we possibly not challenge France through our diplomatic corps, through our legislature, through our media for censoring speech that if it challenges anything on COVID, and I mean anything on COVID, If you were to say, well, you know, the PCR test that was given that shows that you are infected with COVID uh, virus, uh, that's not accurate. And the inventor of that, Dr. Curry Mullis, said, don't use this for making diagnosis. What happened? We used it in the wrong way, at the wrong uh, level. And so we had all these false positives. People really didn't have the virus or weren't sick. And suddenly they became a case. That will put you in prison for three years in France. If you hesitate on the vaccine, that will put you in prison. If you challenge, if you say anything, if you write an article, if you share information over the internet, the, the, it's so broad-based, this, this rule, it not just kills freedom of speech, but it puts you in prison for three years and finds you 45,000 uh, euros, over $50,000. Now, England has a similar law. If you say something critical of Israel or Netanyahu or the Zionist movement or philosophy, even if you're correct, even if you have history and science on your side, you could go to jail. In fact, do you know that Great Britain has put more people in prison for saying things they disagreed with, calling it hate speech when it's not? Thousands have gone to jail. No news on this. Ireland? It's just as bad. So I want to share today an interview that is a good interview because the person talking is one of the world's leading authorities on censorship. And Tucker Carlson, who I agree with on issues and disagree with on issues, he interviewed him. And so in this case, we're fortunate that Tucker sticks with questions. And these are appropriate questions that anyone, I don't care about your background, should ask someone. And, but it's his answers that are absolutely devastating. But before we get there, I just want you to think about this for a moment. I made a comment recently, and I had a person in the audience said, I couldn't understand what you were referring to when you said, if things get worse, look at the best that can come from that. Here's what I meant in the proper context. If one year ago I were to say on this program that it is my belief that I'm being censored, I can't get stuff, hard-hitting investigative reports, I can't get my essays, of which I've written probably more than any other journalist in the United States in the last 24 months. I've written over 50 essays. These are long essays, in-depth, on important topics, investigative reporting articles, can't get them published, and yet every single word in them has been verified by outside scholars. And uh, my radio programs would be censored if I had them on certain forms. And I believe that it's because the platforms, Google, Facebook, um, Wikipedia, as just examples, Twitter at that time would uh, was getting some kind of pushback from official sources, either in governments, the White House, State Department, Defense Department, CIA, uh, to say, no, don't allow this on your form. Don't allow it. And by the way, 
create algorithms that keep people, if they Google Gary Knoll or Chris Hedges or Abby Martin or Max Blumenthal uh, on an article, that they can't find it. Oh, and by the way, let's see if we can't have algorithms which control someone running for election, election. The person we want to win, the algorithm takes them to that site. The person we don't want to win, they take them to a, a desert. There's nothing that's going to get anyone more information. That would have been immediately attacked as a conspiracy theorist, you know, um, an empty-headed logic, all stupid, and there'd be all these gaggle of voices, so-called expert commentaries from people, two, three, four, five people on a panel, 24-7 on all the media and in the New York Times. Okay. It's a hypothesis. But then we find out, after Elon Musk buys Twitter, turns it over, calls it X, and he brings in two really top investigative journalists, and they start looking at the actual inner communications with the people who ran Twitter. And my goodness, they find all these connections between Twitter and the White House. And then all these people are telling the Twitter editors what they could and couldn't do. In fact, the FBI actually had people working in the office. They controlled everything, as did the CIA and Homeland Security. In fact, all the government agencies were able to control what was on these, this social media. Then they find it was also true on other social media. So now it's no longer conspiracy theory. It's fact. So why didn't anyone apologize for being wrong? Every one of those people were wrong who said this is all just nonsense. And they should leave their profession because they're a disgrace to it. Not one apologized. And they're wrong about everything, as it turns out. So we're going to begin today with a commentary from Paul Craig Roberts. Paul Craig Roberts used to be a top editor at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he has a deep background in journalism, won a lot of awards. And his article is entitled, 2024 is the last year of free speech and democracy in the Western world. I'm going to quote it. Then we're going to go from here right into the Tucker Carlson clip with a person who is the expert on censorship. Quote, Don't let the alarmist sound of this column's title put you off. It's not a conspiracy theory. This column is a factual report, as you will see if you read on. Everyone needs to understand that the ruling elite in the United States are implementing a decision to redefine democracy in a way that eliminates democracy, makes Congress superfluous, voting pointless, and discards the Constitution as an outdated document inconsistent with the power the ruling elite intend to wield over Americans and the rest of the world. The decision has been made to redefine democracy from the will of the people to protecting, quote, the sanctity of democratic institutions, end quote. Precisely, what are democratic institutions? Well, they're not the institutions such as Congress and representative government or the rule of law and an independent judiciary that we currently regard as democratic institutions. Quote, democratic institutions are the institutions of the censorship industry, such as the military security complex, the State Department, NATO, the CIA, the FBI, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, NGOs, the Atlantic Council, the Aspen Institute, BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, journalists, Chase Manhattan, and uh, other consensus-building institutions that set agendas and control the narratives to express disagreement with the consensus these lead institutions build is considered to be, quote, an attack on democracy, end quote. In other words, quote, democracy is the property of the elite institutions, and this, the, the sanctity of these elite institutions must be protected from the people, 
defined by Hillary Clinton as, quote, the Trump deplorables. The will of the people is eliminated from the picture. It might surprise you, but universities like Stanford, for example, is fully involved. Major corporations, especially tech companies and social media, law schools, medical associations, and governors and members of Congress associated with the World Economic Forum accept the redefinition of democracy that excludes the will of the people. They also agree that the Constitution is inconsistent with the power they intend to wield over citizens. As I write, the State Department is busy at work obstructing the House of Representatives' inquiry into the executive branch's use of taxpayers' money to censor what we hear about COVID, the COVID vaccine, election fraud, Ukrainian war, Iran, Russia, China, etc. On February 16th, Tucker Carlson interviewed Mike Benz, B-E-N-Z, the world's leading expert on the censorship industry. And by the way, as an aside, that's who Tucker's interviewed. That's who you're going to be hearing, Mike Benz. Here you have a complete and accurate explanation of who rules us. And no, it is not the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergs and why the U.S. government has decided to deep six the First Amendment. The decision has been made and it is currently being implemented. It means that suppression will be used to convert the entirety of the internet and social media into a propaganda ministry serving official narratives. All of the hope that libertarians had of the freedom to speak that the internet would provide has turned out to be unrealistic. You see already the trouble Elon Musk is in for permitting free speech on X. The government has launched investigations of Musk and his companies and uh, with the intent of forcing him out. Both the state of California and the European Union have moved against Elon Musk to force him via enormous financial penalties to turn over to the censorship industry the information that the previous owner was supplying. Information used in artificial intelligence programs to determine who to ban and what tweets to take down. Soon the alternative in social media will exist only as propaganda sites for the, quote, consensus-building elite institutions, end quote. The disinformation of Western civilization is proceeding so rapidly that I cannot keep up with it even as a full-time job. As I reported yesterday, the French government has just criminalized medical truth, and the World Health Organization is about to do so in May of this year. People will no longer have control over their own health decisions. The U.S. government not only keeps the U.S. border wide open for, quote, people of color, end quote, Washington also supplies NGOs who are recruiting the immigrant invaders with hundreds of millions of dollars with which to provide the immigrant invaders with food, water, medical care, and sleeping accommodations along the mapping routes. It cannot happen, you say, but it is happening right now in front of your eyes. The gullible Americans are expert at fleeing from unsettling bad news. Thus, they pave their own path to tyranny. Tyranny is easy to establish over peoples who have confidence in their constitutional rights and integrity of their institutions. The more patriotic the population is, the more susceptible it is to deception and betrayal by government. Try telling patriots what is happening to them, and they'll call you a commie for speaking badly about their beloved country. Christian evangelicals have no opposition to the evil that is engulfing us because they have been brainwashed that they will escape it by being wafted up to heaven. The growth of evil is actually their escape from the sinful world into heaven. The more evil, the sooner they escape. For most of the rest, liberal interventionists and hegemonic neoconservatives have taught that America is exceptional and indispensable, so how can anything go wrong? Combine these awareness blockers with the fact that uncomfortable truths are a bad news turnoff, and that censorship is being established as a national security matter with the argument that it makes us safe and protects, quote, 
democracy. Consequently, the criminalization of truth is rushing ahead. Even the word truth is slated to become a hate word that cannot be spoken. Any information that you have saved that helps you understand the tyranny that is engulfing us should be stored in thumb drives and not in the cloud as all information undermining. And that's what he has to say. Now we're going directly into the interview with uh, Tucker Carlson. And whether you agree or disagree, stay neutral until you hear all the information and then try to check for yourself how much of this is accurate, what Mike Benz is about to share with us. And revealed he had absolutely nothing after two and a half years of investigation that the foreign to domestic switcheroo took place where they took all of this censorship architecture spanning DHS, the FBI, the CIA, the DOD, the DOJ, and then the thousands of government-funded NGO and private sector mercenary firms were all basically transited from a foreign from a foreign predicate, a Russian disinformation predicate, to a democracy predicate by saying that disinformation is not just a threat when it comes from the Russians, it's actually an intrinsic threat to democracy itself. And so by that, they were able to launder the entire democracy promotion regime change toolkit uh, just in time for the 2020 election. It, 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 I mean, it's, it's almost beyond belief that this has happened. I mean, my own father worked for the U.S. government in this business, in the information war against the Soviet Union, and, you know, was a big part of that. And the idea that any of those tools would be turned against American citizens by the U.S. government was, I, I think, I want to think, was absolutely unthinkable in, say, 1988. And you're saying that it's there really hasn't been anyone who's raised objections, and it's just it's absolutely turned inward to manipulate and rig our own elections as we would in, say, Latvia? Yeah. Well, as soon as the democracy predicate was established, you had this professional class of professional regime change artists and operatives. That is, the same people who argued that, you know, we need to bring democracy to Yugoslavia, to get, and that's the predicate for getting rid of, you know, Milosevic or any, any other country around the world where we basically overthrow governments in order to preserve democracy. Well, if, if the democracy threat is homegrown now, then that becomes, uh, you know, then, then suddenly these people all have new jobs moving on the, on the U.S. side. And I can go through a million examples of that. But one, one thing on, on, on what you just mentioned, which is that, you know, fr from their perspective, they, they just weren't ready for the Internet. 2016 was really the first time that social media had reached such maturity that it began to eclipse legacy media. I mean, this was a long time coming. I think folks saw this building from 2006 through 2016. You know, uh, Internet 1.0 didn't even have social media. From 1991 right. to 2004, there was no social media at all. 2004, Facebook came out. 2005, Twitter. 2006, YouTube. 2007, the smartphone. And so, and in that initial period of social media, nobody was getting subscriberships at the level where they actually competed with legacy news media. But over the course of being, you know, so initially even these dissident voices within the U.S., uh, even though they, they may have been loud uh, in moments, they, they never reached 30 million followers. They never reached, you know, um, a, a billion impressions a year type thing as a uncensored, mature ecosystem allowed citizen journalists and independent voices to be able to outcompete legacy news media. This induced a massive crisis both in our military and in our State Department and intelligence services. And I'll give you a great example of this. In 2019, at a meeting of the German Marshall Fund, which is you know an institution that goes back to the U.S. Uh, basically... Um, I don't want to say bribe, but the, essentially the soft power, economic soft power projection in Europe as part of the reconstruction of European governments after World War II to be able to essentially pay them uh, with Marshall Fund dollars. And then in return, they basically were under our thumb in terms of how they reconstructed. Uh, but the, the German Marshall Fund held a meeting in 2019. They held a million of these, frankly. But where, they, where a four-star general... Uh, got up on the panel and and said that uh, that the what happens he posed the question what happens 
to the, to the U.S. military? What happens to the national security state when the New York Times is reduced to a medium-sized Facebook page? And he posed this thought experiment as an example of, of we've had these gatekeepers. We've had these bumper cars on democracy in the form of a, of a century-old relationship with legacy media institutions. I mean, our, our mainstream media is not in any shape or form, even from its outset, independent from the national security state, from the State Department, from the War Department. Uh, you know, you had the, the initial, uh, all of the initial uh, broadcast news companies, NBC, ABC, and, and CBS, were all created by Office of War Information veterans from the, from the War Department's effort in World War II. You had, the, you had these Operation Mockingbird relationships from the 1950s to the 1970s. Those continued it through the, the use of the National Endowment for Democracy and the privatization of intelligence capacities in the 1980s under Reagan. Uh, there's all sorts of CIA re reading room memos you can read even on CIA.gov about those continued media relations throughout the 1990s. And so you always had this backdoor relationship between the Washington Post, the New York Times, and all of the major broadcast media corporations. And by the way, you know, Rupert Murdoch and, and Fox are part of this as well. You know, Rupert Murdoch was actually part of the National Endowment for Democracy Coalition in 1983 when it was formed as a way to, to do CIA operations in an above-board way after the Democrats were so ticked off at the CIA for manipulating student movements in the 1970s. But essentially, there was no CIA intermediary to random citizen journalist accounts. There was no Pentagon backstop. You couldn't get a story killed. You couldn't have this favors for favors relationship. You couldn't promise access to some random person with 700,000 followers who's got an opinion on Syrian gas. And so this induced, and this was not a problem for the initial period of social media from 2006 to 2014 because there were never dissident groups that were big enough to be able to have a, a mature enough ecosystem on their own, and all of the victories on social media had gone uh, uh, in the way of the, where the money was, which was from the State Department and the Defense Department and the Intelligence Services. But then as that maturity happened, you now had this, this situation after the 2016 election where they said, okay, now the entire international order might come undone. S 70 years of unified foreign policy from Truman until Trump are now about to be broken. And we need a, the same analog control systems we had to be able to put bumper cars on bad stories or bad political movements through legacy media relationships and contacts. We now need to establish and consolidate within the social media companies. And the initial predicate for that was Russiagate. But then after Russiagate died and they used a simple democracy promotion predicate, then it gave rise to this multi-billion dollar censorship industry that joins together the military-industrial complex, the government, the private sector, the civil society organizations, and then this vast cobweb of media allies and, and professional fact-checker groups that, that serve as this sort of sentinel class that surveys every word on the Internet. So can you give us, a, and thank you again for this almost unbelievable explanation of why this is happening. Can you give us an example of how it happens? How just and just pick one among I know countless examples of how the national security state lies to the population, censors the truth um, in real life. Yeah. So, you know, we have this State Department outfit called the Global Engagement Center, which was created by a guy named Rick Stengel, who described himself as Obama's propagandist in chief. He was the undersecretary for public affairs, which is essentially the which is the liaison office role between the State Department and the mainstream media. So this is basically the exact nexus where government talking points about war or about diplomacy or statecraft get synchronized with mainstream media. So and may, may, may I add something and, to that? As someone, I, I know Rick Stengel. Mm -hmm. He was at one point a journalist. Um, and Rick Stengel has made public arguments against the First Amendment and against free speech. And somehow oh, yeah, he wrote a whole book on job. it. And he yes. published an op-ed in 2019. He wrote a whole book on it. And he, you know, he made the argument that, that we just you know, went, went over here, that essentially uh, the, for, the, the Constitution was not prepared for the Internet. And uh, we need to get rid of the First Amendment uh, ac accordingly. And, you know, he described himself as a free speech absolutist when he was the managing editor of Time magazine. 
and even when he was in the State Department under Obama, uh, he, he started something called the Global Engagement Center, which was the first government censorship uh, operation within the federal government, but it was foreign-facing, so it was okay. Now, at the time, they used the, uh, the homegrown ISIS predicate threat for this. And so it was very hard to argue against the idea of the State Department uh, having this formal coordination partnership with every major tech platform uh, in the U.S. because the, you know, at the time there were these ISIS attacks that were, and we were told that ISIS was recruiting on Twitter and Facebook. And so the Global Engagement Center was, a, was established essentially to be a State Department um, entanglement with the social media companies to basically put bumper cars on their ability to, uh, to platform accounts and to, and, and one of the things they did is they created a new technology which is, uh, is, it's called natural language processing. It is a artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, ability to create meaning out of words in order to map everything that everyone says on the internet and create this vast topography, topography of how communities are organized online, who the major influences are, what they're talking about, what narratives are emerging or trending, and to be able to create this sort of network graph uh, in order to know who to target and, and, uh, and how information moves through an ecosystem. And so they began plotting the language, you know, the prefixes, the suffixes, the popular terms, the slogans that ISIS uh, folks were talking about on Twitter. When, when Trump won the election in 2016, um, uh, everyone who worked at the State Department uh, was expecting these promotions to the, to the White House National Security Council under Hillary Clinton, who I should remind uh, viewers, you know, was also Secretary of State under Obama, actually ran the State Department. But these folks were all expecting promotions on November 18th, November 8th, 2016, and were unceremoniously uh, put out of jobs by a guy who was a 20 to 1 underdog, according to the New York Times, the day of the election. And when, when that happened, these State Department folks took their special set of skills, coercing governments uh, to, to uh, for sanctions. And the State Department led the uh, the effort to sanction Russia over the Crimea annexation in 2014, these State Department diplomats did an international roadshow to pressure European governments to pass censorship laws to censor the right-wing populist groups in Europe and as a boomerang impact to censor populist groups who were affiliated in the U.S. So you had folks... Um, you had, you had folks who went from the State Department directly, for example, to the Atlantic Council, which was, which was this major facilitator uh, between the government, uh, between government to government censorship. The Atlantic Council is a group that was one of Biden's biggest political backers. They, they, uh, they build themselves as NATO's think tank. So they represent the political census of NATO. And in many respects, when, when NATO has uh, civil society actions that they want to be coordinated to, to synchronize with military action in a region, the Atlantic Council essentially is deployed to consensus build and make that political action happen within a region of interest to NATO. Now, the Atlantic Council has seven CIA directors on its board. A lot of people don't even know that seven CIA directors are still alive, let alone all concentrated on, on the board of a single organization that's kind of the heavyweight in the censorship industry, they get annual funding from the Department of Defense, the State Department, and CIA cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy. The Atlantic Council in January 2017 moved immediately to pressure European governments to pass censorship laws to create a transatlantic flank attack on free speech in exactly the way that Rick Stengel essentially called for to have U.S. mimic European censorship laws. One of the ways they did this was by getting Germany to pass something called NetsDG in August 2017, which was, which, which was essentially kicked off the era of, uh, of automated censorship in the U.S. What NetsDG required was, unless, unless social media platforms wanted to pay a $54 million fine for each instance of speech, each post left up on their platform for more than 48 hours that had been identified as hate speech, um, they, would, they would be fined basically into bankruptcy when you aggregate 54 million over tens of thousands of posts per day. And the, the safe haven around that was if they deployed artificial intelligence-based censorship technologies, which had been, again, created by DARPA to take on ISIS, to be able to scan and ban speech automatically. And this, was a, this gave, you know, I call these weapons of mass deletion. 
These are essentially the ability to censor tens of millions of posts with just a few lines of code. And the way this is done is by aggregating Basically, the, the field of censorship science fuses together two disparate groups of study, if you will. There's the sort of political and social scientists who are the sort of thought leaders of what should be censored. And then there are the sort of quants, if you will. These are the programmers, the computational data scientists, computational linguistics. Every university, there's over 60 universities now who get federal government grants to do this censorship, uh, the censorship work and the censorship preparation work, where what they do is they create these code books of the language that people use, the same way they did for ISIS. They did this, for example, with COVID. They created these, these COVID lexicons of what dissident groups were saying about mandates, about masks, about vaccines, about high-profile individuals like Tony Fauci or, um, or uh, Peter Daszak or any of these others pr protected VIP individuals whose reputations had to be protected online. And they created these code books. They broke things down into, into narratives. The Atlanta Council, for example, was a part of this, this government-funded consortium, something called the Virality Project, which, which mapped 66 different narratives that dissidents were talking about around COVID, everything from COVID origins to vaccine efficacy. And then they broke the, down these 66 claims into all the different factual subclaims. And then they plugged these into these essentially machine learning models to be able to have a constant world heat map of what everybody was saying about COVID. And whenever something started to trend that was bad for what the Pentagon wanted or was bad for what Tony Fauci wanted, they were able to take down tens of millions of posts. They did this in the 2020 election with mail-in ballots. It was the wait, same wait, 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 may, may I ask you, wait, wait, I, I'm sorry, I just got to have to, there's, there's so much here and it's so shocking. So you're saying the Pentagon, our Pentagon, the U.S. Department of Defense censored Americans during the 2020 election cycle? Yes, they did this. They, oh, they did this through the, so, so there's, the two most censored events in human history, I would argue, to date are the 2020 election and the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'll, I'll explain you know, how I arrived there. So the, the, the 2020 election was determined by mail-in ballots. And I, I'm not weighing into the substance of whether mail-in ballots were or were not a legitimate or safe and reliable form of, of, of voting. That's a completely independent topic from my perspective than the censorship issue one. But the censorship of, of mail-in ballots is, is, is really one of the most extraordinary stories in our American history, I would argue. What happened was is you had this plot within the Department of Homeland Security. Now, this gets back to what we were talking about with the State Department's Global Engagement Center. You had this group within the Atlanta Council and the Foreign Policy Establishment, which began arguing in 2017 for the need for a permanent domestic censorship government office to serve as a quarterback for what they called a whole-of-society counter-misinformation, counter-disinformation alliance. That just means censorship, the counter-mis-disinfo. But the whole of, their whole-of-society model explicitly proposed that, that we need every single asset within society to be mobilized in a whole-of-society effort to stop misinformation online. It was that much of an existential threat to democracy. And so, it, it, but they just, they fixated in 2017 that it had to be centered within the government because only the government would have the clout and the coercive threat powers and the, and the perceived authority to be able to tell the social media companies what to do, to be able to summon an NG, a government-funded NGO swarm to create that media surround sound, to be able to arm a, a, in, you know, an astroturfed army of, of fact-checkers, and to be able to liaise and connect all these different censorship industry actors into a cohesive unified whole. And the Atlantic Council initially proposed with this blueprint called Forward Defense. It's not offense, it's forward defense, guys. They initially proposed that running this out of the State Department's Global Engagement Center because they had so many assets there who were so effective at censorship under Rick Stengel's steed uh, under the Obama administration. But they said, oh, we, we're not going to be able to get away with that because we don't really have a national security predicate and it's supposed to be foreign-facing. We can't really use that hook unless we have a sort of national security one. Then they contemplated parking it at the CIA. And they said, well, actually, there's two reasons we can't do that. The CIA is foreign-facing. We can't really establish a counterintelligence threat to bring it home domestically. Also, we're going to need essentially tens of thousands of people involved in this operation, spanning this whole society model. You can't really run a clandestine operation that way. So they said, okay, well, what about the FBI? They said, well, the FBI would be great. It's domestic. 
But the problem is, is the FBI is supposed to be the intelligence arm of the Justice Department. And we and what we're dealing with here are not acts of law breaking. It's basically support for Trump. Or if, you know, if, if, if left wing populists had risen to power like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, I have no doubt they would have done in, in the UK, they would have done the same thing to him there. They targeted Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn and other left wing populist NATO skeptical groups in Europe. But in the US, it was it was all Trump. And so essentially what they said is, well, the only other domestic intelligence equity we have in the US besides the FBI is the DHS. So we are going to essentially take the CIA's power to rig and bribe foreign media organizations, which is a power they've had since the day they were born in 1947, and we're going to combine that with the power, with the domestic jurisdiction of the FBI by, by putting it at DHS. So DHS was basically deputized, it was empowered through this obscure little cybersecurity uh, agency to have the combined powers that the CIA has abroad with the jurisdiction of the FBI at home. And the way they did this, how did a cyber, an obscure little cybersecurity uh, agency get this power, was they, they did a, a funny little series of switcheroos. So this little thing called CISA, they didn't call it the Disinformation Governance Board, they didn't call it the Censorship Agency, they gave it an obscure little name that no one would notice called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, who its founder said, we just, Security, we care about security so much it's in our name twice. You know, everybody sort of closed their eyes and, and pretended, you know, that's what it was. But it was created by Act of Congress in 2018 because of the perceived threat that Russia had hacked the 2016 election, had physically hacked it. And so we had need, we needed the cybersecurity power uh, to be able to, uh, to be able to deal with that. And essentially on the heels of a CIA memo on January 6, 2017, and a same day DHS executive order on January 6, 2017, arguing that Russia had interfered in the 2016 election and a DHS mandate saying that elections are now critical infrastructure, you had this new power within DHS to say that cybersecurity attacks on elections are now our purview. And then they did two cute things. One, they, they, said, they said mis, dis, and malinformation online are a form of cybersecurity attack. They are a cyber attack because they are happening online. And they said, well, actually, Russian disinformation is, we're, we're actually protecting democracy in elections. We don't need a Russian predicate after Russiagate died. So just like that, you had this cybersecurity agency be able to legally make the argument that your tweets about mail-in ballots, if you undermine public faith and confidence, in them as a legitimate form of voting, was now, you were now conducting a cyber attack on U.S. critical infrastructure by, by articulating misinformation on Twitter. And just like that, now what they did then is they Wait, then so in other words, a bunch of... Complaining about election fraud is the same as taking down our power grid. Yes, you could literally be on your toilet seat at 9.30 on, on a Thursday night and tweet, I think that mail-in ballots are illegitimate. And you were essentially then caught up in the crosshairs of the Department of Homeland Security classifying you as conducting a cyber attack on U.S. critical infrastructure because you were doing misinformation online in the cyber realm. And misinformation is a cyber attack on democracy when it undermines public faith and confidence in, in our democratic elections and our democratic institutions. They, they would end up going far beyond that. They would actually define democratic institutions uh, as being another thing that was a cyber security attack to, uh, to undermine. And lo and behold, the mainstream media is considered a democratic institution. That would come later. What ended up happening was in the advance of the 2020 election, starting in April of 2020, although this goes back before, you had this essentially never Trump neocon Republican DHS working with essentially NATO on the national security side and, the, and essentially the DNC, if you will, uh, to, to use DHS as the launching point for a government-coordinated mass censorship campaign spanning every single social media platform on earth in order to pre-censor the ability to dispute the legitimacy of mail-in ballots. And here's how they did this. They aggregated four different institutions. Uh, Stanford University, the University of Washington, a company called Graphica, and the Atlanta Council. Now, all four of these institutions, the centers within them, were, were, were essentially Pentagon cutouts. You had, uh, you had at the Stanford Internet Observatory, it was actually run by Michael McFall. 
If you know Michael McFaul, he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia under the, uh, under the um, Obama administration, and he personally authored a seven-step playbook for how to successfully orchestrate a color revolution. That is, and, and part of that involved having, maintaining total control over media and social media, juicing up the civil society outfits, uh, ca calling elections illegitimate in order to... Now, mind you, all of these people were professional Russiagators and professional election delegitimizers in 2016. And then, well, I'll get to that in a sec. So, so Stanford University, of the nominally the Stanford Air Observatory under Michael McFaul was run by Alex Stamos, who, who was formerly a Facebook executive who coordinated with ODNI and the, uh, with respect to uh, Russiagate, you know, taking down Russian propaganda at Facebook. So this is a, another in, uh, liaison, essentially, to the national security state. And under Alex Stamos at Stanford Air uh, Observatory was Renee DiResta, who started her career in the CIA and wrote the Senate Intelligence Committee report on Russian disinformation. And there's a lot more there that I'll leave, I'll get to another time. But uh, the, the next institution was, was the University of Washington, which is essentially the Bill Gates University in Seattle, who is headed by Kate Starbird, who uh, is, is basically three generations of military brass, who got her PhD in crisis informatics, essentially doing uh, you know, social media surveillance for the Pentagon and getting you know, DARPA funding and, uh, and, and working essentially with the national security state, then repurposed to take on mail-in ballots. The third firm, Graphica, got $7 million in Pentagon grants uh, uh, and, and got their start as part of the Pentagon's Minerva Initiative. The Minerva Initiative is the Psychological Warfare Research Center of the Pentagon. They, they, this group was, an, was doing social media spying and narrative mapping for the Pentagon until the 2016 election happened, and then were, were repurposed into a partnership with the Department of Homeland Security to censor you know, 22 million Trump tweets uh, pro-Trump tweets about mail-in ballots. And then the fourth institution, as I mentioned, was the Atlantic Council, who's got seven CIA directors on the board. So one after another, it is exactly what Ben Rhodes described it during the Obama era as the blob, the foreign policy establishment. It's, either the, it's, the, it's the Defense Department, the State Department, or the CIA every single time. And of course, this was because they were, they were threatened by Trump's foreign policy. And so while, while much of the censorship looks like it's coming domestically, it's actually by our foreign-facing Department of Dirty Tricks color revolution blob, who are professional government topplers, who were then basically descended on the 2020 election. Now, they did this. They explicitly said, the head of this election integrity partnership, on tape, and, and, and my foundation clipped them, and it's been played before Congress, and it's in you know, a part of the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit now, but... They explicitly said on tape that they were set up to do what the government was banned from doing itself. And then they articulated a multi-step framework in order to coerce all the tech companies to take censorship actions. They said on tape the tech companies would not have done but for their pressure, which involved using threats of government force because they were the deputized arm of the government. They had a formal partnership with the DHS. They were able to use DHS's proprietary domestic disinformation switchboard to immediately talk to top brass at all the tech companies for takedowns. And they bragged on tape about how they got the tech companies to all systematically adopt a new terms of service speech violation ban called delegitimization, which meant any tweet, any YouTube video, any Facebook post, any TikTok video, any Discord posts, any Twitch video, anything on the internet that, that uh, undermine public faith and confidence in the use of mail-in ballots or early voting drop boxes or, or, ba or ballot tabulation issues on election day was a prima facie uh, terms of service violation policy under this new delegitimization policy that they only adopted because of pass-through government pressure from the Election Integrity Partnership, which they bragged about on tape, including the grid that they used to do this and, and simultaneously invoking threats of government breaking them up or, or government stopping doing favors for the tech companies unless they did this, as well as inducing crisis PR by working with their media allies. So, and they said the government, DHS, could not do that themselves, and so they set up this, this basically constellation of State Department, Pentagon, uh, and, and IC networks to run this pre-censorship campaign, which by their own math had 22 million tweets on Twitter alone. And mind you, they did this on 15 platforms. So this is hundreds of millions of posts, which were all 
scanned and banned or throttled so that they could not be amplified or they exist in a sort of limited state purgatory or had these frictions affixed to them in the form of fact-checking labels where you couldn't actually click through the thing or you had to, it was, it was an inconvenience to be able to share it. Now, they did this seven months before the election because at the time they, they were worried about the perceived legitimacy of a Biden victory in the case of a so-called red mirage blue shift event. They, they knew the only way that Biden would be able to, was, would win mathematically uh, was through the disproportionate Democrat use of mail-in ballots. They knew there would be a crisis because it was going to look extremely weird if, if Trump looked like he won by seven states. In Nova, you know, uh, and then three days later, it comes out, actually, the election switch. I mean, that, that would put the election crisis of the Bush-Gore election uh, on a level of steroids that the national security state said, well, the, the, the public will not be prepared for. So what we need to do is we need to, in advance, we need to pre-censor the ability to even question the legitimacy. This took out. Wait, wait. May, may I ask you to pause right there? Key influences, so, so what you're mm-hmm. saying is, what you're suggesting is, they knew the outcome of the election seven months before it was held. It looks very bad. Certainly, what they <laughs> yes, did is. It, yes, Mike, it does look very bad. <laughs> uh, you know, and especially when you combine this with the fact that this is right on the heels of the impeachment, the Pentagon-led, CIA-led impeachment. You know, it was uh, Eric Cimarella from the CIA and it was the Vindmans from the Pentagon uh, who led the impeachment of Trump in late 2019 over, uh, you know, an alleged phone call around withholding Ukraine aid. This same network, which came straight out of the Pentagon uh, hybrid warfare network, uh, military censorship network created after the first, you know, Ukraine crisis in 2014, were the lead architects of the uh, Ukraine impeachment in 2019 and then essentially came back on steroids as part of the 2020 election censorship operation. But, you know, from their perspective, I mean, it certainly looks like the perfect crime. These were the people, DHS at the time had actually federalized much of of the national election uh, um, uh, administration through this January 6, 2017 uh, uh, executive order from outgoing Obama um, DHS head Jed Johnson, uh, which essentially wrapped all 50 states up into a formal DHS partnership. So DHS was simultaneously in charge of the administration of the election in many respects and the censorship of anyone who challenged the administration <laughs> of the election. Uh, this is like, you know, putting essentially the defendant uh, of a trial uh, as the judge and jury of the trial. It was but, a very... but, but you're not describing democracy. I mean, you're describing a country in which democracy is impossible. What I'm essentially describing is military rule. I mean, this is I mean, what, what's happened with the rise of the censorship industry is a total inversion of the idea of democracy itself. You know, d- democracy sort of draws its legitimacy from the idea that it is uh, ruled by consent of the people of the people being ruled. That is, it's not really being ruled by an overlord because the government is actually just our will expressed by our consent with who we vote for. Um, the whole push after the 2016 election and after Brexit and after a couple of other, you know, social media run elections that went the wrong way from what the State Department wanted, like the 2016 Philippines election, uh, was to completely invert everything that we described as being the underpinnings of a democratic society in order to deal with the threat of free speech on the Internet. And what they essentially said is we need to redefine democracy from being about the will of the voters to being about the sanctity of democratic institutions. And who are the, inst- the democratic institutions? Oh, it, it's us. You know, it's the military. It's NATO. It's the IMF and the World Bank. It's, 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 uh, it's the mainstream media. Uh, who, uh, it is the NGOs. And, oh, the, of course, these NGOs are largely State Department funded or IC funded. It's essentially all of the elite establishments uh, that were under threat from domestic, the rise of domestic populism that declared their own consensus to be the new definition of democracy. Because if you define democracy as being the strength of democratic institutions rather than a focus on the will of the voters, then what you're left with is essentially democracy is just the consensus building architecture within the, within the democratic institutions themselves. And from their perspective, that takes a lot of work. I mean, I mean, the amount of work these people do, I mean, for example, we mentioned the Atlantic Council, which is one of these big coordinating mechanisms 
for the oil and gas industry in a region, for the, for the finance and the J.P. Morgans and, and the Black Rocks in a region, for the NGOs in the region, for the media in the region. All of these need to reach a consensus, and that process takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work and a lot of negotiation. From their perspective, that's democracy. Democracy is getting the NGOs to agree with BlackRock, to agree, to agree with, the, with the Wall Street Journal, you know, to, to agree with uh, you know, the, the community and activist groups who are onboarded with respect to a particular initiative. That is the difficult vote-building process from their perspective. If, at the end of the day, a bunch of you know, populist groups decide that they like a, a truck driver who's popular on TikTok more than the you know, carefully constructed consensus of the NATO military brass, well, then, from their perspective, you know, that is now an attack on democracy. And this is what this whole branding effort was. And, of course, democracy, again, has that magic regime change predicate where democracy is, is our magic watchword to be able to overthrow governments from the ground up in a sort of color revolution style whole of society effort to topple a, a, a democratically elected government from the inside. For example, as we did in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych was democratically elected by the Ukrainian people, like, like him or hate him. I'm not even a, a, a issuing an opinion there. But the fact is, is we color revolutioned him out of office. We January 6th him out of office, yes. actually, to be frank. I mean, with respect to the, you had you know, a State Department funded right sector thugs and, you know, $5 billion worth of civil society money pumped into this to overthrow a democratically elected government in the name of democracy. And they took that special set of skills home. And now it's here perhaps potentially to stay, and this has fundamentally changed the, the nature of American governance because of the threat of you know, one small voice becoming popular on social media. May, may, may I ask you a question? So into that, that group of institutions that you say now define democracy, the NGOs, um, foreign policy establishment, et cetera, you, you included the mainstream media. Now, in 2021, the NSA broke into my private text apps and read them and then leaked them to the New York Times against me. That just happened again to me last week. Um, and I'm wondering how common that is for the intel agencies to work with so-called mainstream media like the New York Times to hurt their opponents. Well, that is the function of these interstitial government-funded, non-governmental organizations and think tanks like, for example, we mentioned the Atlantic Council, which is you know, NATO's think tank, but other groups like the Aspen Institute, which draws the lion's share of its funding from the State Department and other government agencies. You know, the Aspen Institute was busted doing the same thing with the Hunter Biden laptop censorship. You, know, you had this strange situation where the FBI had advanced knowledge of the pending publication of the Hunter Biden laptop story and then magically, the Aspen Institute, which is run by essentially former CIA, former NSA, former FBI, and then a bunch of sort of civil society organizations, uh, all hold a mass uh, stakeholder simulation, censorship simulation, a three-day uh, conference. You know, this came out and Yul Roth was there. This is a big part of the Twitter file leaks, and it's been mentioned in multiple congressional investigations. But... Somehow, the Aspen Institute, uh, which is basically an addendum of the national security state, uh, got the exact same information that the national security state spied on journalists and political figures to obtain, and not only leaked it, but then basically did a joint coordinated censorship simulator in, in September, two months before the election, in order, just like with the censorship of mail-in ballots, to be in ready position to pre-censor anyone online amplifying wait, wait a, a news story that had not even broken yet. The Aspen Institute? So, I mean, which is, by the way, I yes. spent my life in Washington. It's kind of a, I mean, Walter Isaacson, formerly of Time Magazine, ran it, form, former president of CNN. Um, I had no idea it was part of the national security state. I had no idea its funding came from the U.S. government. You're, this is the first time I've ever heard that. But given, assuming what you're saying is true, it's a little weird that Walter Isaacson left Aspen's to to write a biography of Elon Musk. Strange, or no? Yeah, I'm. You know, I don't know. I, I've I haven't read that book. I, I from what I've heard from people, it's a relatively fair treatment. I you know, just total speculation, but I suspect that Walter Isaacson 
has struggled with this issue and may not even firmly fall in one particular place uh, in the sense that, you know, Walter Isenson did a series of interviews of Rick Stengel, uh, actually with the Atlantic Council and, and in other settings, uh, where he interviewed Rick Stengel specifically on the issue of, uh, of you know, the, the need to get rid of the First Amendment and the threat that free speech on social media poses to democracy. Now, at the time, I was very concerned. This was between 2017 and 2019 when he did these Rick Stengel interviews. I was very concerned because Isaacson expressed what seemed to me to be a highly sympathetic uh, view about the Rick Stengel you know, perspective on killing the First Amendment. Now, he didn't formally in endorse that position, but it left me very skittish about Isaacson. But what I should say is, at the time, I don't think very many people, in fact, I know virtually nobody in the country um, uh, had any idea how deep the rabbit hole went when it came to the construction of, of the censorship industry and the, 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 how deep the tentacles had grown within the military and the national security state in order to buoy and consolidate it. Much of that, frankly, did not even come to public light until, uh, until even last year. You know, frankly, some of that was galvanized by Elon Musk's acquisition in the Twitter files and the Republican turnover in the House that allowed these multiple investigations, uh, the lawsuits like Missouri v. Biden and the discovery process there, uh, and, and you know, multiple other things like the Disinformation Governance Board, who, by the way, the interim head of that, you know, the, the head of that, Nina Jankovic, got her start uh, in the censorship industry from this exact same um, clandestine intelligence community censorship network created after the 2014 Crimea situation. Nina Jankovic, when, when her name came up in 2022 as part of the Disinformation, Disinformation Governance Board, I almost fell out of my chair because I had been tracking Nina's network for almost five years at that point when her, when her name came up as part of the UK inner cluster cell of a busted clandestine operation to censor the internet called the Integrity Initiative which was created by the UK Foreign Office and uh, was backed by NATO's political affairs uh, unit in order to, to carry out this thing that we talked about at the beginning of this, of this dialogue, the NATO uh, sort of psychological inoculation uh, and uh, the, the ability to kill so-called Russian propaganda or rising political groups who wanted uh, to maintain energy relations with Russia at a time when the U.S. was trying to kill the Nord Stream and other Another uh, pipeline relations. <laughs> well, they did uh, that. Marine Le Pen and Fran they, they right. Well, Nina Jankovic was a part of this this outfit, and then who was the who was the head of it after Nina Jankovic went down? It was Michael Chertoff, and Michael Chertoff was running the the Aspen Institute Cyber Group, and then this and the Aspen Institute then goes on to be the censorship simulator for the Hunter Biden laptop story, and then two years later, Chertoff is then the head of the Disinformation Governance Board. After Nina is forced to step down, yeah, a close friends of, of course. Are, Michael Chertoff was the chairman at Bay. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, of course. Yeah, Michael Chertoff was, a, was the chairman of the yeah the the, the largest military contractor in Europe, uh, BAE uh, military. So, so it's all connected. Uh, you've blown my mind so many times in this conversation that I'm going to need a nap directly after it's done. So I've just got two more <laughs> two more questions for you. One short, one a little longer. Short one is for people who've made it this far an hour in and want to know more about this topic. And by the way, I hope you will come back whenever you have the time um, to explore different threads of the story. But for people who want to do research on their own, how can your research on this um, be found on the Internet? Sure. So our foundation is foundationforfreedomonline.com. Uh, we, we publish all manner of, of reports on every aspect of the censorship industry, from, the, from what we talked about with the role of the military-industrial complex and the national security state to what the universities are doing to, you know, I sometimes refer to as digital MK Ultra. There's just the field of basically the science of censorship and how and, and the funding of these psychological manipulation methods in order to nudge people into different belief systems as they did with COVID. And there you have it. Whether you agree or disagree with Mike Pence, understand that the world is moving at such a rapid rate to total control by the World Economic Forum and all their colleagues and other cooperative institutions and the media that they control through BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and Fidelity and Berkshire Hathaway. We used to pride ourselves on freedom of choice and freedom of speech. Today, do not take those for granted. They're trying to take them away from us. 
please share this program with others. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day. Brother, brother, brother